Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. We've all been coached before, in school, at work, or on a team. Your first coaches were your mom and dad who taught you how to communicate, tie your shoes, or play a simple game of catch. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoy my show, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. To donate, go to paypal.me slash Raphael. That's S-I-F-U-R-A-F-A-E-L. I'm trying to keep this podcast free of advertisements. Anything you can donate is greatly appreciated. Thank you. And I think a lot of times, like your experience paints the lens or or helps shape the lens through which you're viewing your world at that moment. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with former NFL and college football coach turned author and speaker, Evan Burke. Evan is using the sports world as his backdrop. He engages audiences with thought-provoking lessons of leadership, team building, and creating championship cultures. Evan, thank you so much for joining me on Coaching Call. How are you today? Rafael, I'm doing great today and excited to chat with you. Likewise, likewise. My gosh, football. American football. Yes. uh, Oh, yes. Sorry. I'm very familiar with it. (laughs) Well, yeah. Here's the crazy thing. I was not. and. Because I've played every sport. I've played football. I've played everything. But I was never a person that would watch. I was always more of a doer. And then my Mm. current girlfriend, who I've had for a very long time, she's almost like my wife at this point, she got me into watching football. And it was because I went to her parents' house. I sat with her stepdad, and he would tell me, Check this out. Do this, do that. But here, here's the problem. Everybody hated watching football with me. Hated it. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. Because I was always rooting for the wrong team. And it wasn't the team that I was more, I, I favored. It was the quarterbacks or the good plays. And that's what I was looking at. And people like, I was like, man, that was an amazing throw. Or that was an amazing catch. You're like, that's the wrong team. What the hell's wrong with you? And I was like, oops. So I, I started quieting that down. But in my head, I was always like, yes, yes, that was awesome. You know, people can get very passionate about their teams. No question. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Tell me about it. You know, I still have my head, thank God, because I learned how to quiet <laughs> down. But Evan, you have a passion for football. Let, let's talk about when you were a child, when did that passion come through? And then we're going to get to today and, and, and take us on that journey of, of that, right? Of yeah, yeah. How it shaped your life, if you will. Sure thing. I mean, I think like a lot of 
young men and women from an early age. I was involved in sports and mm. always very passionate about sports, just whether it was like collecting baseball cards or playing sports video games or, or playing sports. Uh, and I played everything. And um, I think early on, uh, when I was younger, they, the, I, I'm from Dallas, Texas, and the mm-hmm. Dallas Cowboys were one of the best football teams, uh, you know, in the in the NFL at the time in the uh, early '90s, right. and so always was kind of present. And you know, growing up in Texas, it is uh, as a lot of people like to equate it to a religion, and it, it is very much yes. uh, held in that high regard here um, in the South and in the state of Texas. So was always involved in sports and and just kind of had a, a great enjoyment for the sport of football. I am not a big person. I'm not a physically intimidating person. So mm. I actually didn't start playing football until I got to high school. As I mentioned, when I was younger, soccer, baseball, basketball. Uh, and when I was in high school, I wrestled mm. and I played football and uh, two sports that really had a, a huge impact on me and you know, giving me confidence and understanding the discipline that it takes to to have success, and I think maybe starting to 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 plant those seeds for uh, the the coaching that would come later on. But just always had a great love for sport, and was fortunate to be uh, around some great leaders in high school, in particular. That kind of you know had. Right. had the ability to not only teach lessons, but, but make those positive experiences. And unfortunately I, I see too often where, you know, either high school coaches have a lot of ego or it, it's more about them or winning versus, you know, having those really positive experiences. And I'm not talking about winning and losing. I'm talking about, you know, the reason why we play sports. So I think I was very fortunate in that regard. And I think as I kind of started to get into the next chapter of my life, which was going to college, uh, that those experiences definitely left an impression on me. Mm. I, I wasn't good enough to be recruited to to play collegiately mm. uh, for, for football or or to wrestle. And uh, when I went to college at the University of Colorado, I, I quickly realized after about a year that I was missing something. Mm. And anybody that was competitive growing up or in high school that that had to maybe uh, or didn't have the opportunity to compete in college, they can identify with just missing that competition, mm-hmm. missing the camaraderie of a team, uh, missing having something that you're kind of striving towards each and every day. And, and I was missing that. And so uh, at the age of 19, I kind of started my coaching journey, which mm-hmm. started very, very humbly coaching fourth and fifth grade teams at the local YMCA. And Right, right. Um, you know, those were kind of the early beginnings uh, while I was still a college student of my coaching career. And, and you were coaching what sport? So uh, when I when I was nineteen, I was coaching basketball, mm-hmm. uh, soccer, just at the local Y. Just like wanted something to be involved in. Gotcha. Uh, and, and didn't really have much of like a vision other than. As I mentioned, I was mi- missing being part of a team. Right. Right. Uh, and. and I think uh, I think I was maybe twenty, and I and I had started coaching a fourth grade football team, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the beginnings of my football coaching career. Was this this experience coaching fourth grade football? Nice, nice. What what position did you play when you played football? I played quarterback, and I also played defensive tackle. Mm. 
which is a interesting combination for any of the football fans out there. Uh, but I went to a very small private school in Dallas. So, uh, you know, you don't quite have the uh, 330 pound offensive lineman right, right. Uh, beating on you at, at that type of level. And then at those smaller schools. So I uh, was able to survive. <laughs> yes. Uh, being able to play both. Nice. Nice. So you started teaching fourth graders football you started coaching them right at 20 you could have chosen to do anything what did you do after that well uh you know i think it's kind of interesting because i look back on that time and i kind of had an idea of what i was doing but i really had no idea what i was doing Mm. but there's so much in i guess that decision that maybe started to solidify that path at 20, I was at the University of Colorado, which, you know, to be quite frank, is is a little bit of a party school. Right. And if you're going to coach fourth grade football, there are certain sacrifices you're making as a 20-year-old. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might be something where friends are going to the mountains for the weekend, or it might be a, a party on Friday night. Right. Uh, but you have a game at mm. nine o'clock the next morning or 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, uh, in addition to practice during the week. And those aren't huge time commitments, but I think it was symbolic of the commitments that I was going to make later on mm. as I progressed through my career. Uh, and, and as I've always kind of felt like wanting to be part of something meaningful and wanting to build something meaningful. And so going to college, like was fortunate to have great friends Mm -hmm. was, was having a good time at college was um, doing pretty good in school, but I wanted something more. Right. And, and so I think it just kind of naturally started to unfold. And um, after I coached fourth grade football, uh, the next year I coached at a local high school in Boulder Mm. while I was still uh, finishing, finishing up college. And then uh, that, that led me to uh, eventually getting a job at SMU, uh, Southern Methodist University here in Dallas, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, five minutes from where I grew up. So nice. uh, that was really kind of like the big, maybe inflection point, if you will, in my mm-hmm. career where I was taking, uh, you know, another huge leap from, you know, coaching junior varsity high school to, you know, now getting my foot in the door with a division one college football team in the state of Texas, in the, in the city that I grew up in. Wow. What kind of, of, if you think about coaching, right, in order for you to learn to coach, you had to have your own coaches, right? Right. How was that like? Well, uh, I, I think one thing to point out is there's many different ways to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm glad you brought this up because it's it's interesting. It's like, how do you learn how to coach? Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think uh, it's a tough question. And and when I look back, I think number one, I, I think of the the high school coaches that I had mentioned to you previously. I think there's also people that you learn from that you don't know personally, right. whether it's through books. Uh, there was a coach in particular for all the football fans out there. Bill Parcells was the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys at the time. And I can remember, and I don't, I don't want to date myself too badly here, but uh, you know, in 2003, 2004, there was no YouTube. Uh, you had to listen to, if you wanted to listen to something on the internet, you had to have something called a real time player, right. uh, which millennials will have no idea what, what that is. <laughs> 
But uh, basically, I would listen to these Bill Parcells press conferences every day. Mm. You know, we're talking like 2003, 2004. And uh, it's funny, I came across uh, some notebooks from that time Mm. just the other day and just like, you know, would write down like little phrases that he had mentioned during press conferences or, uh, you know, they're going to bench this player. They're going to start this player and like what he said in his press conference. Mm. So I think like I was starting to just build a book or kind of like mold myself into the coach that I thought I wanted to be. Right. Uh, and then I think also, you know, early on you have kind of like mentors that mm-hmm. take, you know, for me, I have a different path. I have a very unique path to be quite honest. Like most football coaches, especially those that coach at a high level, either played high level college football or played professional football, right. or they're the son of an NFL executive or a high level coach. I was neither of those. And so I I was very uh, different. I don't look like a football coach in the traditional sense. I don't have a similar path to everybody else that I'm in the room with. Uh, And so any of the coaches early on in my career that would pay me any attention and give me any uh, modicum of kind of like coaching, if it, if you will, mm-hmm. or, or just advice or just be there for me to learn from meant a great deal for me. Okay. I, you know, you're, you're asking about this and an interesting lesson was my wrestling coach uh, in high school, who I probably would regard as the best coach that I was around that I, mm-hmm. that I personally got to experience his coaching, uh, you know, a wrestling coach, he's big, he's kind of gruff. Uh, you know, he had a very certain way about him. He set very high standards and he mm. definitely held everybody to those high standards. Right. And I can remember early on in my career, I was trying to be coach Rick Ortega, you know, St. <laughs> Mark's wrestling coach. Right. And uh, it, it was, it was obviously one of those early career lessons, but I can remember talking to one of the quarterbacks I was coaching uh, after the season. And he was like, yeah, coach, you know, we know you care. You're here every single day. You're, you're fired up. He's like, but you know, you're, um, you know, you're, you're not really that positive, mm. particularly towards us as quarterbacks. And he's a hundred percent right. Because mm. when I was growing up in that wrestling program, coach Ortega, like he had high standards mm. and like you either met those high standards or like he'd let you know, uh, where you were lacking in terms of meeting those high standards, but he had his own authentic style mm. to the way that he coached. And I, in that kind of moment, and I think reflecting back on that during that time, I was not being authentic to myself. Mm. I was trying to be coach Rick Ortega on the football field. There's certain aspects of coach Ortega in his coaching in high school wrestling that I could have taken with me but I can't try and be him on the field. Like I have to discover my own true coaching voice. Um, And so uh, I'm kind of all over the place, but I think it was a combination of the previous coaches I had, the people I was learning from through books and through studying. Uh, It was the experiences that I was having that were kind of shaping the coach that I was going to become. So, uh, you know, kind of a long winded answer, but I think that's how early on I was shaping my coaching voice. And, and as I kind of mentioned as well, I, I took copious notes and I still have all those notebooks from early on in my career. So uh, I was kind of coaching myself for lack of a better term, like through becoming a coach, uh, which is 
now very cool for me to look back on, as I mentioned, to, to still have some of those, those scribbles in the margin uh, to what I was thinking back as a 20, 21 year old coach. That, that's uh, I, I thank you for that answer. I, I loved it because it allows anyone who maybe is thinking of becoming a coach and what it's not easy. And, and you know, it, you, it can sound easy, but it's not easy because, you know, one of the things that you did and you called it notes, I call it journaling. You were documenting things. You were writing things that made sense to you. And I journal like crazy. So <laughs> I get that. And looking back at your notes and appreciating what you wrote, and then sometimes even wondering, what was I thinking? Right? <laughs> so what did I write? What, what was I thinking when I wrote this? But, you know, the whole thing is that when you hear something, it, it, you kind of cement it by writing it. So it makes a huge difference when you do put it down in paper. And, and you know, I've had people tell me, oh, yeah, I, I typed it up. For some strange reason, it's not the same as writing it. Because you're actually, yeah, you, you know, your fingers are going to move really fast. But when you actually write it, it's almost like you, you are truly, truly reading it as you write it. You know, because you can, some people, listen, I had an ex-girlfriend that can type 110 words a minute. She was super fast. And could she remember every word she wrote? Probably not until she reread it. But when you write it, you're rereading it, right? Because you can't write that yeah. fast. Uh, it, but also she did steno. So if anybody knows what steno is, it's st stenography. And that, my God, that was an art by itself. May, now, now I was like, I journal so much. I'm like, man, I think I want to learn steno. That would be so cool, right? Uh, you know, just to to just touch real quickly. Yeah, uh, I think what you what you're talking about is really memorializing mm. what you're what you're going through, what you're writing. Because yeah, you can write it, you can journal, but I think like what we're talking about is more memorializing what is happening, like putting it to memory, making it something that you can uh, physically touch, yep. number one, but yep. also something that is maybe uh, going to have an effect on you and an impact on you. Uh, even to the point, I, I have an extensive digital notes, mm. like library of everything I kept through my coaching career. And even like now, right? Like uh, have a meeting with a client, like, you know, put that in the digital library, like everything in my life is in this digital library. But I noticed something is that like, it becomes almost like a black hole of information. <laughs> yes. And so I've like slowly kind of like, I've, I started <laughs> like writing everything, then it like progressed to like the intense digital organization. And now it's like going back to like, I have to physically write it out uh, because I kind of like having that piece of paper mm -hmm. and, and having that uh, memorialization. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to touch on that because I do think that there is great value uh, in actually handwriting those things out, not only to put it to memory, but to make it something that's real uh, that you can actually put in front of your face that doesn't disappear into your digital, uh, okay. <laughs> digital uh, purgatory, so to speak. But, you know, I, I love that, that because when you, when you think about if you wrote something 10 years ago, it was a thought, it was a process, it was, it was a, a pattern maybe. But you can't recall that until you reread it and all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. 
How refreshing is that, right? You said you just did it the other day, right? Wasn't that cool? So cool. And and so interesting too, I think, it, you know, for, for me as the development of a young coach, like the thoughts I was having mm-hmm. as a 22-year-old coach, you know, stepping into the SMU football program, Division One football for the first time in my life, I had no idea what was happening. And, I, you know, I don't know what's right and what's wrong. I'm just experiencing it through my own lens uh, and like just something in particular that popped up was I came across a note where the coach had gotten in front of the team and said, guys, we need to develop a road mentality. We need to win on the road. Mm. And I wrote in my notes, like, well, what is the follow-up? Like, we can't just say we need to develop a road mentality. We can't just say like, hey, we need to win on the road. What are the actual steps? Like, mm. are we not are we not doing the right things pregame? Like, is our is our pregame preparation right. not adequate? Like, like what is different uh, about us competing on the road versus competing at home? Like, why are we not listing out what actually the road mentality looks like? And it's just fascinating to me because I still see the same issues. Mm. Not only like later on did I see that in my career by by very notable good coaches, um, but I see it in my day to day work as well with the teams and the and the and the corporate organizations I work with. Like so, oftentimes we point at things on the wall and we say, you know, we're we're going to be a tough team, we're going to be a smart team. But like, what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean to us in our day to day? So. Uh, I, I think that is a really cool for me personally, like that's very cool to go back and see that and see like, oh, I was actually like, I thought I had no idea what was going on. But like this note kind of proves I had a, a semblance of like <laughs> yes. understanding of what was happening. Um, and as you mentioned, like it's a great way to kind of maybe reinforce some things. And like I would never have remembered that 15 years ago, like that happened in a moment and it was a fleeting moment. But the fact that I put it in my notes and memorialized it makes it a physical thing that I can actually go back on. And now I can I can use that story mm-hmm. to kind of illustrate my point or illustrate in my writing. So, uh, uh, yes, I'm very passionate about journaling and note taking as well. And if we need to do a separate podcast just on on note taking, like I, I'm game. Uh, I don't want to derail us too much. But, uh, yes, very passionate about this. <laughs> just on journaling. I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, and, and when we we think leadership, right? I think that journaling is is a huge part of leadership because we may think it, but thoughts and you said it, they're fleeting. If we don't put action behind our thoughts, if we don't put a plan behind it, then you know it, it goes away. And mm-hmm. how many thoughts do we have in a given day? Oh my gosh, you know and. That's why here's one of my many journals that I go through. (laughs) And then I, here's the crazy thing, right? That's just gibberish. And then I take and I put in a different journal. I reread it. And then I take that and I highlight it and I put it. So yeah, we can do a whole podcast just on journaling. (laughs) (laughs) But but let me ask you a question because, you know, you've taken us through what you realized that you were missing something. And you wanted to be part of a team. And then you found that you were coaching different basketball, you coaching soccer, football, and then all of a sudden you got more into football. So now you're in coaching football. You're 21, 22. 
take us further. What, what, what is going on? What is happening in, in your mind? What is happening career-wise? So, yeah, I grew up in Dallas. I went to school in Colorado, and I got that opportunity at SMU. Right. So I moved back to Dallas, and my first role within the SMU football program was an, was an ops volunteer assistant. So um, I was doing all of the glamorous things you think about when you become a college football coach, like uh, monitoring study hall and doing class checks and passing out Chick-fil-A's uh, <laughs> as guys get on the bus. Right. And But I can remember at the time, I thought it was the absolute coolest thing imaginable, like just to be a part of that team, to show up every day and to walk into that office. Uh, and they gave me keys. <laughs> to get into like every every room in the building and i can remember even looking back and, and not knowing anything and really just trying to like find my way and you know for those for the audience that maybe isn't aware when you're talking about coaching or, or working for a high level college team or a professional organization like, like we're talking working seven days a week uh, for, for maybe 11 months of the year. Mm. Uh, we're talking about during season, like very intense work days. We're talking like 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. You're in the facility mm. all, all the time. You're traveling to game. I mean, you are, it is a very intensive right. life yeah. that you were heading into. Uh, and, and obviously I was just trying to like make my mark and, and be there and be an asset mm. to any, like, oh, you want me to pass out Chick-fil-A's? Like I can remember in my mind, like I'm going to be the best Chick-fil-A passer outer <laughs> in America. And some, you know, a coach would hand me, you know, obviously they're not going to give you a lot of opportunities early on. So when a coach comes to you and is like, Hey, where's Raphael? Oh, he stepped out. Hmm. Okay. Evan, can you make me a hundred photocopies of this play sheet that I'm going to pass out to the players? Well, like, to anybody else, they would be like, "Ugh, man, like, okay, yeah, now coach has given that to me. To me at the time, I can remember that was so important because if I could take care of that, that would signal to that coach that like, you can give me other things. Mm-hmm. He's not going to give you, you know, the next thing to do if you can't handle photocopying those hundred sheets. So I just remember at the time, and I had seen a coach, there's a coach, Chris Peterson, who was a, a great football coach for Boise State and later for the University of Washington. And I saw just a 10-second clip of him on like SportsCenter one day. Mm. And uh, he was just like, you know, clapping and like pumping the team up in, the, in like pre-practice. And he goes, come on, guys, are we just getting by? Or are we dominating today? Mm. And I remember seeing that and I was like, that is going to be my mantra for my coaching career. Like, are you just getting by or are you dominating? And like, in my mind, there were only two ways to do things. So like, if I made that photocopy and like, it was supposed to be three hole punch, but I didn't three hole punch it. Like I would go back and do it all over again because like, I'm here to dominate. I'm not just getting by. And that literally served me early on in my career and propelled me through all of the experiences I had. And I know that sounds crazy, right? Like you're, you're talking about doing bed, you're talking about doing bed check on the road and like Evan's like dominating. 
But I think that's what also helped separate me. Again, I'm not the typical football coach. I Mm. don't look like a football coach. I don't have a dad where everybody is aware of who that person is. Like I have to be different. Mm. And so like the way I was different was like, I would sprint up and down the halls to grab things out of the printer. I was sprinting all over the place uh, during practice to like go from one drill to the next, because like that was my attitude. Mm. Uh, and I brought that to everything. And it's easy to maybe just dismiss that as like, you're just passing out Chick-fil-A's, but it's like, you know, there's an old adage where it's like the, the way that you do anything is the way that you do everything. And I think that was like my attitude going into any situation, any experience was like, I'm here to dominate today. Yeah. Uh, and as I mentioned, I, I really feel like that propelled me throughout my career. That's huge. That's huge. And most people don't get that. And it doesn't matter, right? No, You could be 15 years old, 16, 28, 38. That's the attitude that not only gets you noticed, but even when nobody's looking, you still need to do it, right? That, to me, that's integrity also. A hundred percent. And, you know, one of the hard parts is like not everybody is going to, They may notice, but they may not say anything. You may not get the type of feedback that you crave or, or that you, that like is letting you know that you're doing the right thing. Mm. But I was very fortunate where from that early ops assistant role, I was promoted to the next role, which was in the program was being a video grad assistant. So then I started going to school on top of having this ultra intense, you know, seven day a week, uh, you know, 10, 12 hours a day schedule. Uh, and then, you know, you progress. I, I, I was fortunate enough to progress to being an on the field coach. Mm. Uh, but again, as you just mentioned, like that attitude is how you go from being a fourth grade football coach to the NFL in six years. Right. So uh, again, like I, you know, I'm kind of starting to get a little long winded and go off on tangents, but I just really believe like that attitude is, is what really propelled me despite not having the typical pedigree of a coach. Right. So how did you get your break into the NFL? So after I was at SMU uh, for four seasons, uh, we had uh, actually some, some pretty good success there. And uh, I wanted to return for a fifth season. And uh, when I had like approached, so in college athletics, when you're a grad assistant, uh, they allow you to finish your degree and stay on uh, beyond the time limits, the term limits that they have for these grad assistant roles. Uh, And I still had, I think, like five or six hours left. I had another season that I could have stayed at SMU. And when I went to the head coach to tell him this, he, he informed me that they had already hired my replacement. Oh, wow. Uh, that I wasn't aware of. Uh, so in that moment, I kind of, I was really upset in that moment, right? Like I was from Dallas, like SMU was very comfortable Mm -hmm. for me. I wanted to stay there. I wanted to actually become a full-time coach and, um, to hear that was a little bit devastating. Uh, but I kind of have a rule for myself where it's like, okay, I'll allow myself to feel bad for myself for 24 hours. But like when I wake up the next day, like it's go time. Mm -hmm. And I, that definitely happened because I remember the next day I was like, okay, you know what? Like, I'm not going back to SMU. I'm going to try and get a job in the NFL. And I don't know anybody, but this is what I'm going to do. And I kind of laid out this plan and I'll, I'll, I'll highlight the plane here in just a second, but I just want to highlight also the, like the flip in my mind 
where I was like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to like make this stand to like try and get a job in the NFL. And everybody that I was kind of around was telling me, Hey, you know, Evan, like that's, it's really hard to do. You don't know anybody. Nobody knows you. Like what you should do is you should go to this small school in Idaho and try and get on there. You should go do this. And I just remember in my, in my heart, I was like, I don't feel like that's what I'm here for. Like mm-hmm. I want to, I want to coach at the highest level, but I didn't know anybody. Right. So what I did was I probably knew about 15, 20 coaches that I actually coached with. So I made a spreadsheet on Excel, 1970 to 2009. Mm. And I went in and I manually filled out where every coach uh, had worked throughout their career. Oh, wow. Uh, and because I didn't know anybody in the NFL, I made a separate spreadsheet of every NFL employee, mainly coaches, GMs, player personnel, front office executives. And I did the exact same thing mm. manually. 1970 to 2009. And I listed out where everybody had coached, everybody had played. And then I laid them on top of each other. In any place that I saw a coach that I knew had like crossed paths with any employee in the NFL, I wrote that person a handwritten letter. Hmm. Hey, Coach Smith, uh, I'm Evan Burke at SMU. I know you coached with Coach Burns at Northwestern in the 80s. Uh, he says great things about you. Uh, I'm going to be at the senior bowl next month. And I would love to meet you and get your advice on getting a job in the NFL. Mm. Right. And uh, I, I don't know if coach Burns is even cool with coach Smith. I have no idea, <laughs> right. but like, I didn't know, I didn't know anybody. So mm. I was like, well, how can I set myself apart? I've always been really passionate about writing handwritten letters And so I went on this handwritten letter writing campaign and ended up totaling 450 handwritten letters that I sent to basically every employee that I had a connection to in the NFL. And from those 450 letters, uh, and I actually did go to the senior bowl, which is kind of like a college all-star game where uh, once I was at this game, I had like a list, a top 10 list of people I was trying to meet kind of like networked with those top 10. I met eight of the 10 people on that list. Uh, And out of those 450 handwritten letters, I ended up getting 12 responses. Mm. And from those 12 responses, I got three interviews. And from those three interviews, I got one job offer. And um, that is, that is how I was able to uh, knock on every door in the NFL and, and finally find one that let me in. I call that determination. And willpower right because how many people will say yeah i'm going to write 450 letters and you know and then you're waiting for the response too right that that's the hardest part by the way (laughs) of course how many people miss that even now everybody thinks i'll email well text but when somebody gets something in the mail there's something that's special about opening a letter right to me that's that's super special Congratulations for thinking outside of the box, especially, you know, at that time when people were like, oh, I'll just email somebody. But that, that was huge. So who did you accept the job offer with? So that job offer was with the Miami Dolphins. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. How, how did that go? It was so, in one word, it was intense. Mm. <laughs> 
coaching at the professional level is a very intense lifestyle and, and just existence, mm. right? Like, I, I don't know if there's another word that adequately describes it. Like I said, you're, you're basically, you know, I moved to Miami. I didn't really know anybody. Um, I didn't know anybody within that program except for, you know, two or three people I had networked with mm. to give everybody context. Like I would tell when people found out I was in Miami, they'd be like, Oh, that's so cool. Like LeBron just got there. Are you like, are you seeing LeBron out on <laughs> South beach? What's it like? How, you know, how's, uh, you know, how's the nightlife in, in Miami be? And it's like, um, I eat every meal at the <laughs> yes. dolphins facility. And, you know, it was, it, like, it was a very interesting time for me, obviously, because like I had gone to college and I had immediately gotten a job in division one football, but it was five minutes from where I grew up. So, uh, you know, it was just an interesting experience to be, I guess, 26 at the time and moving to Miami and not knowing anybody and, uh, having a very, very intense job. Uh, it, it was like, it was very draining in a lot of aspects, mm-hmm. um, but an incredible growing experience for me personally and professionally. Uh, so I, I look back on that time very fondly and, you know, still have some, some great friends that I met within that organization. Uh, and again, like I was continuing to build my book, everything that I was seeing right. was, uh, you know, I wasn't. There was nothing that I was seeing that I was just taking for granted. Like I was in those moments. I can remember like very vividly just like receiving emails or, or coming across a piece of paper. Uh, even something as simple as like, okay, how are we going to do picture? Like, how are we going to do our picture day? Right. Well, most people would just like see that and say, okay, I'm, I'm on the third row and like throw that away. Well, for me, like I'm saving that in Miami Dolphins book. Mm. Right. Where I've got like every practice scripted out. I've got every single, uh, you know, note from a team meeting and, and things. So uh, it, it was a great experience on top of the fact that I mentioned earlier that Bill Parcells was kind of like one of these people that I looked up to that was almost like a probably in coaching for me it was like a, a larger than life figure. Right. And uh, he was the president of the of the team mm. during that time that I was there. So almost kind of like a very surreal moment. I, I, All right, I can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, if you can't tell, like I'm usually not shy. I'm not usually at a loss of words. <laughs> um, but I was probably like the only time where I was like a little bit, you know, speechless, like just being in that building with him and being a little awestruck of, hmm even though he wasn't coaching at the time, just like being around him and just like hearing little things that he would say during practice to some of the players or something like that was just really cool for me. And and I can just remember soaking all of that in. Uh, and again, you know, not a time where people are like, wow, Miami, that must've been awesome. It was awesome, but, but not for the reasons that people ob- uh, honestly like equate Miami to. Um, I was there to work and I was there to dominate and that's what I did. And how, how long were you with them? I was there for one season. Okay. Yeah. So you talked about your book. Let's go ahead and talk about your book. You decided to write a book. Yeah. Why on earth would you write a book? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been on my life list for quite a while. Mm. So I figured uh, it, it was time. I, I think that what I wrote my book about was something I was always passionate about. 
And the book title is Finding Intangibles. And it's really about the unseen traits and how to find the hidden traits that drive all elite performers and championship teams. And so what I was seeing throughout my coaching career was that everybody thinks that when we talk about great performers or winning teams, that we're, we're talking about the most talented. And what I found in my career was that the best teams, the best players were never the most talented. They always had the most character. And I felt like a lot of rooms I was in neglected the character to a large extent. They might talk about it. They might entertain conversations about it. But ultimately, it comes down to who's the most talented. And you see this time and time again. I don't care what sport we're talking about. I don't care what industry we're talking about. The best are never the most talented. Tom Brady is not the most talented football player of all time. But he is the best football player of all time. Uh, So it's just kind of deconstructing like, well, what makes him great? What makes the teams that I've been on great? And what separates uh, the good teams from the truly great teams? And ultimately, what you find is that they possess these things. And and you kind of were mentioning it a moment ago, the determination, the drive, the ability to get knocked down and not be deterred and to get back up stronger than you were before. Um, I think represented all the great performers and and championship teams I was around and to, to, to an extent as well represented my career. Yeah. That, that non quitting attitude, right. That no matter what I'm, I'm still going. Yes. You know, you can knock me down 500 times. I'm getting up every single time. And yeah, I mean, and you're right. I'm look at Babe Ruth. How many times did he strike out, right? Yeah, I think, he, isn't he the all-time leader in strikeouts or something? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. And like I, like I was saying, one of the things that, that really gets me is now when I watch any sports, it's the athleticism, the, the, the drive that each player has, the willingness to take a risk. And no matter how difficult, that's it. And I think that to me is just beauty in motion because, yeah, you know what? They can get hurt, especially playing football, especially going for a catch or even doing the throw or, you know, tackling someone. No matter what position you're playing, there is that chance that, yes, I might get hurt. And everybody who plays football knows that. They have to be aware of it. And obviously, this is why there's so much protection that they have to wear, right? All the helmets, the padding, all the different things. But the beauty is, to me, is in taking that step that so many people are afraid because they're afraid of getting hurt. They're afraid of the truth, right? But you don't know until you try. And and a lot of times, I'm sure you've seen this too, Raphael, like, that's where the growth happens. Mm-hmm. Like you will never take the next step. You will never reach a higher level if you stay where you've always been. Uh, and, and I've seen that time and time again. You know, I, I talk in my book about the talent paradox. Mm-hmm. Uh, talent is essential to success, but success is not determined by talent. And I think this is where a lot of people go wrong is they think, well, they're the fastest. They're the biggest. 
they're they have the best ability. Uh, that's that's good, and they, and you need that to a certain extent to have success in any specific field. But like, if that was true, the players with the best combine scores every year would be on the best teams, uh, and that's never the case. And um, it, it's just something I've always been very passionate about. And I also started to see every coach majority, 95% of the coaches I worked with would always just kind of like make excuses, right? Like, Oh yeah. Character's great. But like, if he can't play, what does it matter? But the very best coaches I was around always thought in the exact same way, Hmm. like the, the best coaches from my career, when I look back are the coaches that would talk about determining a player's competitiveness Hmm. that would talk about how important uh, a, a player's character was that would talk about the type of players that we wanted to bring onto the team. And really what my book is about is it's about how do you build a winning culture? Mm. And I wanted to write a book about culture and not use the word culture. Mm-hmm. And I think like where a lot of teams go wrong and we were kind of referencing this earlier, they point on the wall and they say like, we are a tough, smart football team. Mm-hmm. It says it right here. We talk about it every day. Well, first of all, 20-year-olds nowadays are not listening to you, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless it's in a TikTok, they're not listening to you. Okay? Nobody cares about what's on the wall. What's more important is like who was the last person you brought into the team? Because mm-hmm. that really tells everybody in that locker room or on your team what you're really about. And like so oftentimes in sports, we see teams that like make a ton of exceptions Mm -hmm. or they make excuses for guys. Oh, well, like he wasn't really a great teammate at this last place. Oh, that's because this last place they're weird over there. And that coach does this and this and this. And like, he's going to be great when he gets here. And then Mm -hmm. what always happens? Like he's a bad teammate when he gets to the next place. Well, do you think that it, that maybe that's him Mm -hmm. and not like a result of all of these excuses that you make? So, I was seeing this time and time again, and uh, what you see the very best coaches, and I'm and for for the football fans out there, the maybe basketball fans, I'm talking like Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr, Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, Mike Tomlin, like all of these guys, they might have different programs, but they're doing the exact same things. Mm-hmm. They're defining exactly what they want their team to look like, and they are aligning their talent acquisition process to get as close to they can is like checking every box on the players that represent their culture. Because ultimately your people become your culture. The words on the wall are not your culture. You can say that to the, to the shareholders and you can say that to like the other coaches and executives in the room and they'll all nod their head, but like that ultimately doesn't matter. What matters is the people that you bring into your organization. So really finding intangibles is about finding those traits that you want your team to represent and the culture ultimately that you want to have. And and that can also lead to business, right? It doesn't have to be a football team or a soccer team or a basketball team. That that right there is culture is to any business. You know, even like I run a martial arts school and, and the culture for me is important. So I, when I bring people in to be part of, and I call it family, I actually do a, 
a interview type process where I, I let them know, listen, this is how we do things. And if this is okay with you, then we'll, we'll try you out. But I, I want to let you know right away, I don't accept everybody to be one of my members. Because to me, we're family. The minute you become my member, you're part of my family. You can call me anytime. You can text me anytime. So for me, that culture is important. It's, it's the people you want to surround yourself with also, right? And it, it helps represent who you are, I believe, for business, right? I, I love that, that, that you wrote that. What you just said is so important too. <laughs> and this is where people go wrong. Mm. Is like you just, I, I love everything you just said. Like when they come in to your organization, this is family. And if that's the most important thing to you, why would you sit here and compare and contrast what level, you know, belt people have, right? Because like at a certain level and and like to to use the the pro sports example, like if you're considering somebody to play a certain position, like they're good enough. Mm -hmm. Like what determines success is not like, well, this person's an eight out of 10 on talent. Uh, and this other person's a seven out of 10 on talent. Well, what if the person that's eight out of 10 has no uh, interest in being family? Right. What if they're the, just there to pick up their paycheck, but they're a whole, they're a whole point better on the talent scale. What are you going to do? And it's so interesting how many people just make excuses and say like, well, you know, he's an eight out of 10 out of talent. Whereas the seven out of 10 or the six out of 10 talent person, they can maybe get the job done but they're going to contribute more to the collective whole than somebody who's going to come in and detract from the collective whole. And so ultimately, what you were trying to do is you were trying to fill your team with as many uh, people that reflect the character and culture that you want to build uh, to, to continue to strengthen that culture, that family perspective, uh, because every person that you bring in that doesn't reflect that culture detracts from that culture. And this is where teams that fail to have the, the, consist, the consistency and the success and the ability to sustain that go wrong. Is they think to, to, to continue this, we need to continue getting talent. And that's not actually what's going to continue it. The teams that continue to have the success, yes, they have talented players, but everybody's talented. Right. Everybody in the NFL is talented. Like what you need is people that represent your culture uh, and my, my culture might be different from your culture, right? And so like understanding what it is truly that you're looking for is so key. So for you, like having them be a part of your family is probably one of the most important decision right. criteria. Uh, Absolutely. like hopefully everybody that makes it past the first interview, like can do the job, can be a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, has the requisite knowledge to do what you're asking them to do. That's great. But like, what's the team fit? What is their character fit on this team? And uh, those are the second and third levels that I think a lot of people neglect. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So let, let's talk, let, let's take a little curve, if you will. You have a podcast as well, right? Let, let, I do. Let's talk about that. And what's the name of your podcast? Thanks for bringing that up. Sure. The podcast is the highest level podcast with Evan Burke. Mm. And uh, it's a sports leadership podcast. So it really kind of sits at the intersection of sports and leadership. And I'm typically talking to athletes, coaches, any type of sports leader, and really just examining how championship cultures are built and what leadership excellence looks like at the highest level. Mm, nice. 
And so uh, these were conversations I was always having during my coaching career uh, that I always just thought like, well, I'm just a nerd for all this stuff. Uh, and like, who else really cares about a uh, hour long conversation about how to establish accountability on a team. Right. And, and I kind of uh, started to realize that other people would be interested in these conversations as well. So um, I appreciate you sharing and conversations I love having um, even separate of the podcast. And so that's kind of how it started was to kind of put all of it together and, and, you know, bring on people that, not only that are peers of mine, but also people that I look up to and, and continue to learn from them. Nice. I, I like what you just said, that you continue to learn. And, and to me, that, that's so important. And it uh, sounds like an amazing show. So definitely, we need to check it out. Even my audience needs to go check it out. Here's the thing that I want to ask you. Why is it important for people who don't play professional sports to have a coach? Well, I think kind of what we were just outlining, um, you know, the continual improvement, continuing to learn. And I think also the accountability factor, mm. like, you know, it's really easy to say we're going to do something, um, but the actual follow through, like we all have trouble with that. And sometimes it may not be uh, necessarily the uh, instruction that we need in a certain moment. Sometimes it's just, we need somebody either there to encourage us to let us know that everything's okay, or to kind of like keep us on the right path. Uh, and I look at, I mean, you know, you, you said if we're not in professional sports, well, I always kind of equate it like Roger Federer is the greatest tennis player of all time or one of them. Uh, and he's 40 years old. Like there's nobody on earth that probably knows more about tennis than Roger Federer or, or Rafael Nadal. Or, or, or a joker, but yet they all have coaches. They all have somebody there and they're not necessarily better tennis players than them. And so I think it's crucial that when we're talking about reaching the highest level, like going back to what I said earlier, if you're just trying to get by, maybe you don't need a coach, but if you're trying to be your best, if you're trying to reach your personal highest level, uh, I think that it is an investment in yourself and and also in your future self, correct? Oh yeah. Uh, you don't want to be here a year from now. Uh, and like, oftentimes, I believe the best way to to do that and to kind of plot plot that path forward uh, is to have somebody that can lead you on that path. Oh, yeah, definitely. When did you decide to become an executive coach to teach people outside of sports? to impact them similarly to what you've done for athletes? Well, I think after I left coaching, uh, my decision to leave coaching uh, after 12 years, and I, uh, after I left Miami, I coached at uh, McMurray University in Abilene, Texas, and then later at UCLA mm. in Los Angeles. And uh, I just wasn't fulfilled anymore. And I think also... I had a North star that I always wanted to be the head coach for the Dallas Cowboys. And that North star stopped motivating me. Mm. And so like when I had my very strong North star and I knew I wanted to be the, the head coach for the Dallas Cowboys, I can move to West Texas from Miami and be okay with it because like I'm on this path. Like I was very sure of that. Mm. Uh, but the moment that you 
go through any type of adversity or any challenge and you look to that North Star and it's no longer fueling you or it doesn't fuel you like it once did, that was the first time that it ever happened to me. And that was the moment I knew I had to like take a moment and take a step back and maybe... I'm not on, maybe, maybe I'm not going to go down this path Uh, because as I mentioned, coaching is very intense. And like, I started to look down the road 20, 30 years and I'm like, Oh, this never ends. Like I'm always going to be moving. Uh, Like I started to look at the people around me and they had certain, they were going through certain experiences uh, with their kids or their, or their uh, marriages that like I didn't want for myself. Like I didn't want my life to represent that no matter how cool the job was. And so like once that stopped fueling me, uh, I, I felt it was time for a change. And uh, as we've kind of mentioned here a couple of times, I uh, crashed and burned on a, on a couple of uh, paths, but like I eventually found this, this path. I had met somebody who's involved with performance consulting uh, which really kind of equated to coaching and, and speaking to organizations and that work with them about maybe four years ago kind of was when the light bulb went off for me uh, and kind of like started me down this path. Uh, and, and I think primarily I work, you know, with companies in terms of speaking and delivering, you know, uh, development workshops, particularly around personal development, leadership, team building, um, and, and also doing coaching as well. So uh, something that uh, I believe that storytelling is a is a strength of mine. I don't know, you know, <laughs> you know how we are an hour into this, but um, I, I, I love being able to tell the stories and teach through what I think are relatable experiences in sports to the business world. And it's huge because you know he, here's the thing: because how different is it really if you think about it, right? When you're coaching somebody who's an athlete, or you're coaching someone to make a decision on their life or their, their business. It's not that different, is it? Well, I, I'd make the argument it's pretty much the exact same thing. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know, you, you may, uh, I don't know how big your, uh, your karate practice is, but like um, when you start getting up into like 20, 30, you know, football teams are 150 people. Mm. They're, they're basically mini organizations. And like, it's not possible to run your 150 person organization like a family. Um, that sounds great in theory, but like, you know, to a certain extent, family has unconditional love. And when we're talking about the high performance business, uh, like a lot of times you have to produce, <laughs> like oh, yeah. people aren't going to love you if you're not producing. <laughs> uh, and so like it, in that regard, it does take on, uh, the feeling of a professional sports team. You've got to get all these people that have all these different motivations and are being pulled into all these different directions. How do you get them all to come together towards one common goal, mm-hmm. pulling in the same direction? Uh, and this is not to say that, you know, you desiring to have a family atmosphere with your practice is not, is not good. I, right. I think that uh, for, for what you described, it's perfect. Um, but I think like, as you increase in size, it just doesn't become realistic. And so in that, in that regard, it does become almost exactly like a sports team. Uh, cause there's acquisition costs that everybody has to consider. Um, there are different getting people motivated, building cultures that are all present, whether we're talking about building a business or building a, a professional sports team. Right. Right. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things, and you just said it right there, it's the culture. So for me, it's, yeah, even though a lot of my clients, I may not know directly, but I know them. They kind of know about me. So, and and that's the whole thing. Even when you're you're creating that culture, there's that, that respect, you know, that they have the understanding of what we stand for, right? And, and the same thing, if, if you have, you know, a huge organization, let's say you have, you know, 10,000 employees, you still need that culture. You need that understanding of this is what we stand for. This is what we believe in. This is our philosophy. This is our family. And, and so a lot of times, no matter the size of the organization, as long as you have those things in place, I agree with you. Yes, I, I'm not going to be able to know all of my members, what their dog's names are and all the, you know, their spouse's names and their kids' names. And No, I will never know that. It's too big. But what winds up happening is I can see them and I'm like, oh, I know you. And then they know me. And then it's that mutual respect. And they, they know that this is what we stand for. And we're, we're in this together. And we're here to help you. Maybe it's not me directly. You know, that's why I have other instructors and all these different things. But it's not necessarily me, but my instructors, they're your family, right? I'm mm-hmm. part of their family. We're all a big family. It's almost like it, it's a generation, if you will, right, of people who have commonality, who they came in knowing what we stand for and they agreed. Yes. They agreed to be part of that culture because we also let them know we don't accept everybody because this is our beliefs. And if your beliefs don't align with ours, then, you know, there's a different place that you can go to. We'd be happy to let you know where it is. You know, in other words, we're showing you the door. <laughs> right. Totally. And I, and I think we're kind of talking about oh, something. Yeah. Sim- we're, we're, we're using different vocabulary, sure. but we're talking about the same thing. Like, exactly. uh, you know, a lot of, let's just say like sales organizations, like they're not going to care about family, uh, right? Like you're there to sell. Uh, well, you're making that determination in terms of your team. Like this is what the priority is. That's perfectly fine. That's your prerogative. Other organizations, kind of like what you just described. Yes, you, you need to have productivity and results and all those things. But like you might put a priority on on being a family or having that family atmosphere, uh, which might in turn give you something that's more meaningful. Those people want to be a part of something that's more meaningful. Uh, and it has that cascading effect. So a lot of times, like where your priorities lie oh, yeah. uh, and, and like how you decide to build your team out or, or build that culture out can dictate everybody that comes through that culture and how they experience your organization or that culture. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. My God, you and I can talk for hours on this stuff. <laughs> oh, it's already been an hour? Oh, I, I thought we were 10 minutes in. It feels like five, but you know. <laughs> you know, w- one of the things, and, and I appreciate the fact that you you did something, and, and I, I, I'm going to harp back on it, and, and you, you took notes. You, you observed the moments in time, but without just looking at it and say, oh, that's interesting. But you said, that's interesting. What can I get out of it? How can I develop it? How can I, how can I make my life better? 
by making my life better, I'm going to help other people. And, and, and you did that through your journaling, to writing it down, to understanding that this moment in time, I could never get back. But I might be able to relive it because if I just go on memory alone, you know, there's so much coming in. That memory alone will, yeah, it, it will get me there. But man, can I get deeper into it if I, if I journaled it, if I documented it, right? If I, if I put it in a way that I understand it. Because sometimes when it, we, something may happen and we don't understand it. But if we put it down, later on, we can come back and explore it and go, now I get it. Now it makes sense, right? You, I'm sure you've done that, right? Oh, 100%. And I was just going to, I was going to ask if you had like ever read a book that multiple times and maybe like on another reading, it meant something different to you than the first time you read it or the last time you read it. Uh, and I have a couple of books like that, that I can, that I reread periodically that it's like, it's interesting. Cause it's like, I love this. This is my favorite book. Right. And I never even noticed this before. <laughs> and I think a lot of times like your experience paints the lens or, or helps shape the lens through which you're viewing your world at that moment. Right. Uh, and so specific to what you said, sometimes there's things that you're taking down or you're taking note of and, and you're like, I don't quite know why this is important, but this feels important. And it may not be till later, like you said, when you're reviewing or I, I like what your term reliving that experience that the light bulb kind of goes off. Uh, writing this book was definitely that for me because i think like it was a topic i had i written my master's thesis about it um i was very passionate about it. i always talked about it but i think like as i started to write about it i was like oh i thought i was the expert at this and i know nothing about this uh and as i started to like reverse engineer the places i had been and the coaches i had worked for i was like oh that's why they did this hmm. oh okay so that's why they drew this line in the sand and like, weren't going to allow this to, to impact us any further. Oh, that's why. So things started to kind of like connect that I hadn't seen before. Um, and this was one, one of the honestly great benefits to, to writing it all out and undertaking the monumental challenge of, of writing a book. So I'm really thankful for that experience. You know, Evan, I, I want to thank you for today. I mean, I had a great time, great getting to know you. And, and I, I, love, I love the way you think, you know, and I think that, you know, for me, that's connections are everything, right? I, I think I do this podcast for selfish reasons. I get to meet incredible people. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being such a great guest today. I really appreciate you. How can someone get in touch with you? whether they need you for personal reasons, for business reasons, or they just want to buy your book. Sure thing. So the, the best way to reach me is online uh, on my website, coachevanburke.com. Mm. Uh, Burke is spelled B-U-R-K, no E. Uh, I'm also on all social media that I can keep up with, at Coach Evan Burke. Uh, so whether Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, probably Probably LinkedIn and, and Twitter are the, are the top places to find me on social media. Uh, my podcast that we talked about before is called The Highest Level Podcast with Evan Burke. Mm. That's available on all social media, uh, excuse me, podcast platforms. And I also put some videos up on YouTube as well. And then uh, I appreciate you mentioning my book and, and giving me the chance to talk about it. It's called Finding Intangibles and it's available on Amazon. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. Wow. So, Any advice? <laughs> Go ahead. Go for it. Oh, no, I was going to say, you know, you mentioned uh, enjoying this conversation and the selfish reasons for having the podcast. And I can relate. Um, I, I do the same thing on my podcast. And this was this was really great to get a chance to chat and talk with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. So before we go, any advice that you can give somebody who is looking to become a coach, any type of coach? Well, I think number one, uh, reverse engineer what it is you really want. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, figure out what your North Star is and, and start to plot your path to towards achieving that North Star in coaching. The second thing I would say is be adaptable uh, and be prepared to um, maybe go down a path that you hadn't initially considered. And uh, as we've kind of been talking about throughout you know, our conversation, I would say the third thing is continue to learn and continue to grow. Uh, and, I, and I think those three things kind of can lay the foundation towards achieving the North Star that you set out for yourself in coaching. Beautifully said. Thank you. All right. Listen, I, w- I want to thank you again for today. Thank you for the connection. Thank you for being you and being authentic. And that to me, my friend is awesome. Thank you again. Thank you, Raphael. All right. Have your best day ever. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode and a new guest. You can find all episodes of the Coaching Call podcast on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I ask that you please leave me an honest review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. I'm trying to keep this episode free of advertisements. Anything you can donate to the cause is greatly appreciated. To donate, go to paypal.me backslash Thank you and I really appreciate your help.